Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. This is Brave Little State. I'm May Nagusky. I'm sitting on a faded turquoise sofa in a living room filled with college kids. I'm visiting Slade, an off-campus house for University of Vermont students. Every other Thursday, it's open mic night. Or, as it's known on campus, coffee house. And that's house. H-A-U-S. You want her. To taste you the coast her. with friendly toast and watch the winds roll out of bed and she ran to the police station. February. Sick in the tub, toes and fingers. I'm here as a reporter for Brave Little State, though this assignment is also kind of personal. I'm a junior at UVM, and this moment, crammed inside this funky little space, filled with colorful paintings, string lights, and also someone's curly hair taped to the wall, this is a perfect snapshot of my three years of college. I'm surrounded by friends and strangers, all of us coming together for the sake of an unpredictable experience. Child within, Slade is what's known as an ecological co-op. It was founded on the principles of eating well and living intentionally and sustainably. The students who live here buy, cook, and eat local food. They eat dinner together five nights a week. They have Sunday meetings to divvy up groceries and discuss community events and each other's lives. They also have weekly chores such as cleaning the bathroom or common spaces. And they spin a wheel to decide who does what. And of course, they hold events, like Coffee House. Let me go down the line. This is a story about community, not the abstract idea of being in community, but intentional communities, communes, co-ops, eco-villages. And if your mind immediately goes to the peace and love hippies of the 60s and 70s, you're not alone. We'll get there. But we're also talking about present-day Vermont communities whose members give up certain parts of quote-unquote mainstream life and embrace living communally. And I'm not going to lie, it really appeals to me too. <laughs> Welcome to Brave Little State, a listener-powered journalism show from Vermont Public and a proud member of the NPR Network. Here on the show, we answer questions about Vermont that have been submitted and voted on by you, our audience. Thanks for being here. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. 
Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. Ella Wegman Lawless is today's winning question asker. What's your dog's um, name? This is Willow. I will wait for the dog to pause for one moment. Ella was born in Marshfield, Vermont, raised in the Midwest, and then moved back to Vermont in 2012. Now, she lives in Denmark. But no matter where she is, community has always meant a lot to her. And her first introduction to communal living was right here in Vermont, at Bread and Puppet, the renowned political puppet theater. She spent the summer she turned 18 living at their farm in Glover. Later on, she lived at Heartbeat Life Sharing, an intentional community in Hardwick for adults with developmental disabilities. At one point, she even started her own community house in Burlington. I suppose I thought that out of X amount of places that lived in Vermont, you know, a high percentage of them could be considered communes or intentional living communities. And, you know, that's just me. But how much of that is is the place and how much of Vermont as a place um, cultivates that, I guess. So, Ella submitted a question to our show, and lots of you voted for it. Does Vermont have a high number of communes, and if so, what is the deal? The line is really gray and can be hard to define between, you know, an intentional community, which often has, in my head anyways, positive connotations, and a commune, which has negative connotations. Vermont has a long history as the home of communities that formed to resist individualized, capitalist, mainstream culture. There was a radical vegetarian group in Guilford in the 1790s, often called the Doralites. You may have also heard of the Oneida community, a religious commune that got its start in Putney before moving across the border to New York. And throughout the years, these radical, oppositional communities kept popping up. Think of the Shakers or the Weston Priory, which is a community of Benedictine monks. This is a human impulse to gather together with other people, to follow a certain way of life according to certain values, and to share that closely and intensely with other people. This is Amanda Gustin. She works at the Vermont Historical Society. And she says the history of communal living in Vermont that you might be familiar with. Hippies flocking here in the 1960s and 70s, Good karma, brown rice, sex, drugs, free love, and rock and roll. That's not exactly what happened. I think a lot of people talk about the 1970s as, oh, that was the moment when there was a quote-unquote takeover. Vermont as a a sort of hotbed uh, of a kind of counterculture movement. It's half perception, half reality. The reality is that there was an influx of people moving to Vermont at the time. The 1960s and 70s also saw really the only population increase Vermont had seen in about 200 years. The misperception part is about why people were coming to Vermont. The common narrative is the back to the land movement, people coming to places like Vermont in the hope of living more closely with nature. People like Jean Lathrop, who was featured in a 1980s radio special from the Vermont Historical Society. I think I believed and I still believe that my life would have more meaning if I'm part of some larger effort than my own individual efforts to go through life. But Amanda says another reason for the population increase was simply because this was the era of the baby boomers. Also, 
IBM, the massive tech corporation, set up shop in Vermont in 1957. The large majority was people just moving to Vermont, not necessarily in any kind of connection with counterculture. Right, Your average person was moving to Vermont in the 1960s not to live on a commune, but to work at IBM. Amanda says the narrative about Vermont being a hotbed for communal living, it really took hold in the aftermath of some high-profile media coverage, like an article in Playboy magazine in 1972. The headline was, Taking Taking Over over Vermont. Vermont. And it was all about how the hippies could move to Vermont and change the state politics. I think often, like, you ask people, oh, like, it just was a weird thing that happened in the 60s and 70s, and then everything changed. No, history's never that simple. It would be boring if it was that simple. It's much more complicated. Mm. (laughs) Proportionally, maybe more people coming to Vermont and doing this than in other places. Statistically significant in proportion, like a huge outlier, probably not. And it's hard to um, say definitively uh, a lot of things about it. Um, Some of that is intentional. Like some of these people didn't want to get recorded by mainstream history. So they they weren't. (laughs) Maybe you've heard of Total Loss Farm in Guilford or Quarry Hill in Rochester. These were communes with roots in the 1960s and 70s. And they're still around. But they're not the same. And they no longer qualify as communes by most definitions. It turns out, they're just tough to sustain over time. One by one, people decided that being here and creating a close-knit community that was basically the inner focus of everybody's lives was no longer the most pressing way. That was Veranda Porsche, one of the co-founders of Total Loss Farm in Guilford. She was featured in the 1980s radio special from the Vermont Historical Society. And thanks to the counterculture movement of the 60s and 70s, there are all kinds of stereotypes out there about what a commune is. Hippies, anarchists, peace, love, and nature. And there's definitely some of that out there. But what actually makes a commune a commune is money. When you join the community, you join one of the community's businesses, hammock making, tofu, and your outside assets are frozen when you join. You're really just, you know, sharing everything with the other residents, and that's what is taking care of you. This is Cynthia Tina. Which is, um, sorry, two first names. She spent the past 10 years of her life learning about intentional communities across the world. The first one she visited was back when she was 15. It gave me exposure to a radical different way of living. And that set me off on a journey where I've now visited over like 135 different intentional communities, eco-villages, co-housings around the world. There are many different terms that describe different kinds of communal living arrangements. Intentional living community is the broadest one. It's an umbrella term that describes a group of people who live together or live near one another. And they regularly share resources based on a set of common values, like love of the earth or compassion for those around us. Communes are a particular type of intentional living community. And Cynthia says they're not very popular these days. So the number of communities that are that economic model is actually a really small number. 10% I've heard of the intentional communities movement. I think it's even less that I'm aware of. Maybe 20 to 30 in the United States. At the peak of communes in the 60s and 70s, Amanda, from the Vermont Historical Society, 
estimates there were anywhere from 50 to 120 located in Vermont. Some barely made it a few weeks, others a few years, a couple persisted for decades. Overall, though, the data is a little murky. One of the tricky parts of studying this is that they're, in as much as they are communal living or collective living situations, they're different from each other. And that's the idea, right? The people who live there choose choose their way of life and how they follow that. So counting is difficult. So the answer to Ella's first question, does Vermont have a high number of communes? Well, as far as we can tell, no. But that doesn't mean that intentional living writ large has disappeared. The communities in Vermont today just organize themselves differently. According to Cynthia, there are at least five eco-villages in Vermont, aka intentional communities with an ecological focus, such as growing their own food, sustainable building design, or renewable energy. For instance, Cynthia lives in a community in Cabot where they all build their own homes. Um, This is a balcony. I'm imagining eventually having like a slide coming off it. Genuinely. Yeah, I think that'd be fun. There are also at least 10 co-housing communities where residents own private homes but share certain resources and facilities, like chickens or a lawnmower or a common room. There are also at least 20 housing co-ops, some of which are resident-owned mobile home parks. It's a similar model to a grocery co-op where members have ownership in the business, but in this case, it's also their home. And finally, Cynthia says, there are at least 20 intentional communities that are still developing. All in all, about 50 to 60 documented communities that fall under the intentional living umbrella. Plus, countless other more informal homesteads, collectives, villages, and farms that may or may not qualify. Each of these Vermont communities may also check more than one box. For example, Cynthia's community in Cabot is called Headwaters Garden and Learning Center. It's both an eco-village and a co-housing community. How is your new home? It's very nice. You should come over and see it. Okay. Yeah. We're going to walk there. Yeah, you can walk there. (laughs) You're my neighbor. Yep, I'm your neighbor. (laughs) And I like you. Oh, I like you too. (laughs) (laughs) We check out the gardens and the orchard the pond, the sauna, the bonfire pit, the chickens and all the goats. All of which are shared resources. So again, like all of these extra benefits and resources and spaces that I wouldn't necessarily have if I was living alone. But because I'm in a community, there's just access to so much more. Cynthia is so passionate about this kind of lifestyle that she's made a job out of it. She's a community matchmaker, which means she travels all around the world to help her clients find intentional communities that are the best fit for them. Okay, so I often start by asking, why would Brave Little State want to live in a community? I'm pretty curious about her process, so I ask her to pretend that Brave Little State is her newest client. Can we talk about your budget and how much you could afford to? Would you be buying a home within a community? Would you be on a more rental basis? You know, I'm going to go big here and say we would buy. Yeah. Nice. (laughs) Cool. Cynthia is a true professional. And after a series of questions about Brave Little State's situation, as well as our hopes and desires, Cynthia has a match for us. 
I think perhaps a co-housing community. I am thinking Bristol Co-Housing. They are an amazing community right within the village. The Brave Little State team is not exactly in a position to uproot and move to an intentional community right now. And neither are a lot of people. It's a big switch. So I've worked with close to 300 clients. However, it's a much smaller number who actually go through all the steps to ultimately be in a community. Most people, though, are just what we call community curious. But Vermont is still home to dozens and dozens of these communities. And lots of people do take the plunge into this alternate way of life. I mean, it feels scary. It feels edgy. It feels like, oh, is it just going to be so hard the whole time? But that's what a lot of people are living with right now. We can bring healing together and it can be slow. That's okay. After the break, I visit an intentional community that doesn't fit the hippie stereotype. That's after this. Hi there. How's it going? I'm Kim. Are you May? Yeah, I'm May. Good to meet you in person, Kim. I'm visiting the Dismas House in Burlington. The Dismas House is a home where formerly incarcerated folks can live. During the day, they go to work or school independently. At other times, they do stuff together. Attend 12-step meetings, study, do household chores, or relax. This is a unique intentional community because it's setting them up to leave. The goal of those who live there is to become more prepared to transition back into society. There are five total Dismas Houses in Vermont, and there are other Dismas models around the country and the world. Of all the Vermont Dismas houses, this one has been around the longest, 36 years. In the evenings, Burlington Dismas House has group dinners with staff and volunteer cooks from the broader community. I love, I love. Okay. What the hell is it called? Shepherd's Pie. Uh, shepherd's Pie. Uh, yeah. Never had that. You never had Shepherd's Pie? We had that once here. It was delicious. Yesterday, the soup was. I join one of their house dinners to learn more. Matthew Ballas, one of the longest tenured residents, kicks things off. Thanks everyone for being here. It means a lot to me to have this many people. It's the most people I've ever seen in this house before. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's great to have everyone, um, and I'm interested to uh, getting to know all of you. Yeah. Thank you, and let's give our volunteers a big hand. Thank you guys. There are 14 of us sitting around a table laid out with iced tea, lemonade, bread, butter, and soup. Oh, soup is good. Mm-hmm. We talk about hot sauce. Yeah. Hot sauce. Tabasco. And I learn more about life in the Dismas community, which seems to include a lot of movie nights. What was the favorite movie you watched together? Step Brothers. I know you love Step Brothers. Step Brothers. I think the one where, oh, Black where, Adam. where he had to go get his daughter from uh, Black Adam was yeah, cool. that's Shawshank Redemption. The seven or so men who live here also do group bonding activities, like putt-putt golf or camping, led by house director Kim Parsons. 
Not everybody, I've learned, is thrilled with camping. Uh, <laughs> Quickly, the dinner conversation turns to the deeper stuff that a community like Dismas offers to residents. I think everyone pretty much has like the same common goal. This is Matthew again. You know, get to like the next step in your life and just be where you like, be like in a position that you were maybe like, I don't know, before you went to jail. I mean, immediately before I, I went to jail. I wasn't in such a good place, but before that, I was in a really good place, and everything got screwed up. So my, my goal from being here is to put myself back where I was, you know, before. Some men live in the Dismas house out of necessity. They're not mandated to be there, but some of them don't have many options. Matthew, for example, went to prison for just three months, but he says he needed Dismas to get to a better place mentally. I didn't want to come here, and that's the truth. I was like, why would I want to come to a house and live with people um, like the same type of people I was living with in jail. You know what I mean? Why would I want to do that? But you know what? It proved me wrong because I'm still here and I, my intention was to come here and leave immediately. And I've been here for going on two years. What's kept you staying here for two years? I think we all know the answer to that. <laughs> the only woman I ever loved. <laughs> Matthew's referring to the house director, Kim who seems to be like a mother figure to him. I just give like, like my deepest gratitude to Kim. I think I owe her a lot. You know, we really hope that Dismas takes the structure. It's not your family. It's different than family. But still, there are some things, um, there are some structures to family that are really good and solid, you know, just communicating and coming together and sort of sharing um, you know, when there is, you know, we do have struggles in here when someone relapses or things are going on. And, you know, we talk about those things and the way we deal with them are together. When I walked in here, the minute I did, I felt the same way you felt. Yeah. I felt like very warm. Like the house is very welcoming, everybody nice. This is resident Abdul Qadir Kalmoy. He shares with me that before he went to jail, he wasn't a very good father or person, but that he's working every day to be better. He's been at the Burlington Dismas House for four months, and he says it's helping him achieve his high school diploma. We do go after each other and ask each other questions, advices, or what we can do or how we can help each other out. And, you know, I could not get this support from anywhere else, and I am really appreciate it. Yep. Yeah. I can't thank them enough. So appreciate all you guys. We appreciate you. <laughs> At one point during dinner, Matthew starts to cry, and Abdul Qadir hands over his napkin with a sweet smile on his face. This moment really stayed with me. There's something about adult men showing raw emotions and helping each other through it all that is so beautiful and rare. A family unit is one of those communities where you lean on each other to get those resources. And those resources could be material, they could be money or rent or food. They could also be like love and acceptance and grace and like, um, I don't know, the benefit of the doubt. This is Emily Copeland, one of the volunteer cooks who has been coming here for years. Because people don't get it. And they'll be like, oh, that's so nice of you. I'm like, oh, no, you don't get it. Like, it's amazing. Like, it's the most fun night. And then 
somebody does my dishes and hands them to me. And then I get to see people out in town. It's just yeah. like if you don't if you don't come here around this table, you don't get it. You don't get what this is. You don't understand. That is true. Yeah. And this table is where all the magic happens. <laughs> From Dismiss and Slade to the dozens of other intentional communities based in the state, they didn't end up in Vermont by accident. People chose to be here for a reason. Vermont's a really connected place. People are here a lot of the time because we want to be connected with earth and land, live close to nature. This is Brianna Arnold. She's been living in a community in Underhill for the past year. And I wanted to get her take on Ella's winning question. Why do so many of these types of communities seem to pop up in Vermont specifically? Why are there intentional communities in Vermont? Because we have winter. Like, you want to have winter alone? You want to cut all your wood alone and burn it alone? I think the cold really brings us together in ways that we like, can't even resist. We need, we need each other to stay warm and to, you know, it's so much work to provide for yourself, especially when there's seasons. Because you can't just go out and, and eat blueberries off a bush like there's a lot more kind of open-mindedness and I don't know how to describe the hippiness of it but it's like Ben and Jerry you know like <laughs> this is Eve Fisher she's working on starting her own eco-village which will also be sort of a spiritual retreat in the northeast kingdom and she pointed out another reason Vermont is an appealing place for these types of communities a more practical reason. When I first started looking to get land to create, I knew it had to be the Northeast because my vision isn't just for myself, it's for the next generation and the next one, the next, you know, like I'm looking ahead and I'm looking at global warming, <laughs> frankly, and I thought it has to be somewhere where there's always going to be water and it's always going to be cool enough, you know, for people to live. This idea of thinking and working collectively, either for future generations or for each other, is something that stuck with me during my reporting. It's not just about finding a climate-resilient location. It's also about the relationship people who live in intentional communities have with the land around them. I mean, it's our home. It's our substance. Like it's our, it's our bodies. It's what our, our bodies are formed from. Your ancestors are buried in the land and the soil is actually made up of your family. This is John Hunt. He's a member of the Nohegan Band of the Kusuk Abenaki Nation, a state-recognized tribe, and also one of the co-founders of an intentional community in Chittenden County. When you see the land as your homeland and you're, you're, not, in, you're not thinking about going away, you can't really make a choice to, to pollute a place and think like, well, well, we'll just move on to a new place. When it's, when it's your home, you want to take care of it. You know, like if you have a fiddlehead patch, you can't over harvest that patch. And if you do, you'll see the results or your children will see the results. So you have to be in a caretaking relationship. The emphasis on the natural world is more explicit in some communities than others. During my reporting, I went to an eco-community festival in Underhill. Basically, it was a community-building event that included a potluck and a dance party and some discussion. As soon as I get out of my car, a man with a big beard walks my way. He's just tried out the sauna down by the river. 
Once I walk into a building called The Barn, I see middle-aged people with their shoes off giving each other long, two-armed hugs. I feel kind of like an imposter here, like all of these people already know one another from past bonfires or meditation retreats. It turns out the latter is actually quite accurate. Soon enough, we're all called to join a circle. I wasn't able to record because they said it was sacred. But just imagine, 35 of us sitting on cushions facing an altar with sweet grass and an oil blend and objects pointing north, south, east, and west. All of a sudden, someone starts singing a song I've never heard before. It feels like everyone in the circle already knows the words. And I feel the urge to pretend like I'm singing along, even though I'm not really saying anything. Kind of like I did growing up, during services in my local synagogue. And then the talking starts. We're supposed to loosely share our names or things we're passionate about or what we're working on or just generally how we're doing. Whatever someone wants to say, the space is there. We pass around a heavy wooden pine cone. Only the person holding the pine cone is allowed to speak. A few people break down crying during their turn. Someone mentions being a retired contractor and why he views this old way of life as toxic and harmful. Many people mention hempcrete, a hemp-based building material, and how important the human mycelium network is. Someone says, quote, I wish instead of having a dollar general for every town, there was an intentional community for every town. Folks emphasize the importance of raising kids in these types of communities. And I wonder, you know, how much of how we are is because we weren't seen in, in like, all of our fullness as children. This is Brianna Arnold again. We were in the sacred circle together, and we caught up a few hours later after the festival transitioned to a dance party slash jam session. She says it's been easier to be herself since joining an intentional community, which is at odds with her experience in mainstream society, where everything is so individualized. I feel like we break everything up. We have, like, specialized teachers and a therapist and a friend and someone you jam with, and they're all, like, separate beings in separate places and aren't all in the same room let alone the same, like, person. <laughs> Not that one person can be everything, but special to relate with people in, in a lot of overlapping ways. People I spoke to during my reporting shared a lot of different reasons for joining an intentional community. To help re-enter society, or to escape traditional confines, or to redefine what society even means. And that pursuit of a more fulfilling life and community is deeply connected to a journey of self-healing, which so often goes back to childhood stuff. We often seek out the life we wish we could have had as a child, or we try to build it for our own children. But there are also people who choose to leave intentional communities, and they often do so just as, well, intentionally as when they joined. If I'm here in these intentional communities, for a lot of people, it's way too old side of their box where they can't even relate to me, you know, or they're not, I'm not accessible to them. This is Anthony Resnick. We met at the Sacred Circle during the Eco Festival. He was sitting two cushions over from me on his knees, and I couldn't help but notice his perfect posture. He had a big smile and maintained deep eye contact. Anthony's headed back to mainstream living, most likely to Florida. He feels ready to reconnect with the life he left behind. As he tells it, he used to be pretty successful in the mainstream sense. I had my own house, you know, nice car. I had a great career, plenty of money and all that good stuff. And at the same time, there was also a huge emptiness inside of me. 
I just got tired of feeling like a rat spinning in a wheel in the same circles over and over again. So he let all of it go. And for the past seven years, he's been living in intentional communities around the world, including most recently here in Vermont. My intention was to heal myself, heal my family, and heal the world. But Anthony also told me his experience in intentional communities wasn't all smooth sailing. One of the things that also brought me into intentional communities was a lot of judgment towards society and how evil the world is and money's evil. And I think that you can go from the place of being totally immersed in it without questioning it and then there's the other extreme of it's all evil and I need to push it all away and I need to live totally outside of it and I'm at a place in my journey where I'm just totally at peace with all of it that I can see that everything has some good in it and everything has some not good in it. Intentional community it's like a pressure cooker (laughs) which means We all have stuff that's inside of us laying dormant. And if you live in a really intimate space, it's going to stir all of that stuff up. This is an idea that a lot of people mentioned, how it can be really hard to live in this way. Here's Brianna Arnold. It feels scary. It feels edgy. We need to really lean on each other in order to be at these edges and face these hard things and and be like, okay, we can bring healing together and it can be slow. That's okay. An enormous majority of intentional communities fail in the first few years. This is Sam Bliss. He grew up in a nuclear family and then lived with nine others in California out of necessity and decided he loved it so much that he would never turn back. So he co-created an intentional living community in Burlington with, among others, our question asker, Ella Wegman Lawless. And it's because uh, a group of adults who, like, grew up in nuclear families in a society that doesn't prioritize sharing or collective decision-making without leaders are trying to do something that they haven't been trained to do and there's not great models for, and it's extremely difficult. We're all figuring it out. This is a big experiment. This is all about co-creation. And when you join a community, it's not like the problems in the wider world go away. These are really microcosms for All the things that are happening in wider society, those things show up in community, too. This is Cynthia Tina again, the community matchmaker with two first names. In community, it's like living in a rock grinder. So you're the rock bouncing around off of these other rocks. You know, it's being cranked and the rocks are bouncing and getting smoother and shinier and more polished. And we need that. We need not only the online social media connection, like we need to be able to see our neighbors and know who's across the street from us. And if I have a bad day, I go and knock on my neighbor's door and share what's up. I didn't think much about community when I was growing up in Cleveland, Ohio. And then I came to Vermont for college a few years ago, and I met my friend Sam. And she silently instilled these weird, awesome values in me, like group hugs, barefoot walking, and eating the heel piece of a loaf of bread. Sam lives in Slade, the student co-op I mentioned at the very beginning of the episode, the one that hosts Coffee House. And because of her, I decided to live in Slade next year. I can't wait to do more cooking and build a funky, beautiful community with people I didn't know before. To be seen and to see others. To have more group cuddles and tandem bike rides. So yeah, I signed up for the Rock Grinder. 
What's the worst that can happen? May Nagusky. Thanks for listening to the show. And thanks to Ella Wegman-Lawless for the great question. To see photos from May's reporting, check out our website, bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, you can submit your own question about Vermont, sign up for the BLS newsletter, and vote for the question you want us to tackle next. We're on Instagram and Reddit at BraveStateVT. May Nagusky reported this episode and did the mix and sound design. I produced it with help from the rest of the Brave Little State team, Myra Flynn and Angela Evansy. Ty Gibbons composed our theme music, other music by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Lexi Krupp, Eric George, Marley and Julia Hunt, Hannah Braun, Colin Bradley, Sarah Peterson, Colton Francis, and the Hungerfort Community House. You might be listening to this episode in your favorite podcast app. If you are, make sure to hit the follow button so you don't miss our next episode, or the one after that. And if you like what you heard today, please rate the show five stars in Spotify or rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts and let other people know what's up. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public and a proud member of the NPR Network. I'm Josh Crane. We'll be back soon with more people-powered Vermont journalism. Until then, we're going to let the folks from Slade's Coffee House Night take us out. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.